we have 18 million Americans with shopping addictions and I was one of them. Mm -hmm. And you cannot stop that unless you get to the core. And the core of that is overconsumption. Mm -hmm. The problem is we have too much stuff and we need to take responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. If we just think about how different it was with the amount of items we have in our home from 60 years ago to now, it's insane. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. I want to tell a story of when I was in my early 20s in college and I went to Europe and visited my pen pal who was Dutch and she was also in college in in Holland. And so I went to see her and it was such an amazing thing for me to go and see how other young people were living in that way in Europe. So first of all, there was no campus. She went to school and I believe it was Rotterdam if I remember correctly. <laughs> And the school was not concentrated in one campus. So she had a little tiny flat and she had a little Bunsen burner stove where she made her tea and she heated up her little soup and this just tiny little room, a tiny little stack of clothes in a box by the bed, a little bookshelf, little desk. And she went home on weekends and her mother baked bread for her to take back that she would eat on all week. And her mother would bake her one loaf of bread. And so she ate things like peanut butter and she would buy a can of soup or something. And this is how she lived and studied. It was very different from the way I, I was living in college where we had a dorm and we had a dining, dining room hall. and yeah. all the sports and the clubs and all this sort of thing. So it really set up for me a stark contrast to the lifestyle as a young adult. And I just remember that. I remember being very struck by that. It probably affects me to this day. Did you have any, maybe envy is not the right word, but did you have any feeling like, oh, I want to live like that or that'd be cool? Or were you just like, whoa, this is different? I was kind of in awe. Yeah. Do you know that she could pull it off and that it seemed just perfectly fine? She had plenty of everything. Yeah. You know, one loaf of bread and some sort of spread and cheese for the week mm -hmm. and her tea and her soup and her little bed and all that was just fine. And it was all about her studies. <laughs> so perplexing. <laughs> I know. Just study it. <laughs> I'm sure she had friends and so forth. I mean, this yeah, has yeah. been a long time ago. And I think she even introduced me to some of her friends. And, of course, nobody had cars. They all were on their bikes yeah. and they walked everywhere. I'm truly envious of that sort of thing. Like, I want that. Now, this was in the 70s. Yeah. I don't know that it's changed that much. I don't know. I can relate. I have a similar experience of I have lived in France. And I, unfortunately, didn't get all the way to that place. I guess I only had one suitcase of clothes with me, but I still had a couple of shelves I can remember in my little apartment of clothes that I brought from America, never wore, packed them back up and brought them back. Mm -hmm. And of course, while I was there, because I was in France, I would buy new clothes. So I still had too many things when I was in France, but I was in awe at the way that when I would visit my friends' apartments, how they lived. I also babysat and tutored a lot in France and just the houses and how families would operate in just smaller areas and with less stuff and the roads were narrower and the cars were smaller and the grocery stores were smaller and there were less options for everything but it was just more satisfying I don't know something about that European sense of being able to do with less mm -hmm. and being slightly more community-minded and as if you are part of a whole has really struck me and always stuck with me mm -hmm. there's many parts of me that are like Oh, that's the best way. 
obviously, we've even discussed on this podcast how, you know, there's all sides to everything. But I will say this conversation that we are introducing, yes, uh, we get into some of that. And it, it did make me also miss my European minimal lifestyle. And I just find it so interesting. You might want to mention while you were there, you were working in France. Yeah. So I was teaching English in the French schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was only 2014, 2015. So it wasn't that long ago. Although now it's feeling like it was longer ago. But you know, the schools I was with I was working at, we're out in the country and no iPads. I mean, teachers didn't really even have computers. And something that struck me about the schools there was it's mostly natural light. Like a lot of the schools that I worked at, like didn't even turn the lights on all day because they had these big, beautiful windows and they would have enough light to learn by. And I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. I don't know like why they did that to save energy or money or what, but I do know that like fluorescent light always gave me headaches in school and kind of made me miserable. So just little things like that, that. I'm just like, oh, this is so great. Something else just occurred to me. That visit with my Dutch pen pal, the whole idea of a pen pal. I know. <laughs> I thought of that when you started yeah. talking about it. Like, I went to visit my pen pal in Holland, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's a sweet idea. Which reminds me, we do have pen pals in the almanac. We do. That was so fun. Yeah, I just wrote my pen pal a letter today. Yeah. My pen pal's in France. Really? Of course. Oh, so. <laughs> so. Let's get into today's episode. Why are we talking about Europe? We're talking about Europe because Danielle Alvarado, who is our guest today, currently lives in Europe. And at the time of this conversation, was living in Italy in a tiny town. She describes it so sweet in a tiny apartment with her kids and her family and just has such specific ways of living a minimal, sustainable life. Now, I will note that since this conversation was recorded, she has since moved to Cyprus and she tells a story on her Instagram. On her Instagram, she is sustainably kind living and she's a great follow if you're into sustainability. And we definitely recommend following her and her community. And particularly, I loved her whole like move to Cyprus and like why she went there from Italy. Danielle Alvarado is the creator and founder of Sustainably Kind Living, where they believe that life is better when they work together as a collective. They believe in community, connection, sharing in the ups and downs of life, and lifting each other up. Sustainably Kind Living is a judgment-free and fun space to learn all about starting your sustainable journey. We love talking to Danielle. Something that she said particularly struck me, and I've talked about it a lot, but I've yet to actually do it, so I'm going to talk about it again. She says that every time she gets new clothes or brings anything new into the house, she sells something that she already has. Instead of just giving things away, she goes through the trouble to sell something because, in my opinion, selling things online is actually really annoying and it takes a lot of steps mm -hmm. to take a picture of it. You have to post it. You have to, you know, ship it, whatever. But in that, in those multi-steps and that extra work, you're kind of putting that intention behind you know, you're thinking, do I really want to bring this thing into my house? So that really made an impression on me, and I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> haven't done it yet. Something that really struck me about this interview was her conversation with garment workers when she was in Southeast Asia. I thought that was very, very eye-opening that she was actually talking to the people on the ground doing these things. And easy for us to talk about the hardships and to know about them and try to open people's eyes. But it's quite another thing to talk directly to these people and see what their lives are like. So I thought yeah, that was amazing. really, really valuable. So Danielle really brings a really wide breadth of experience. And she is such a warm, open heart and kind, welcoming personality. So we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here's Danielle. I am Danielle and I run Sustainably Kind Living. It's a website, a social media, Pinterest, all that good stuff. And the main goal of it is to just make sustainable living accessible to everybody, size, culture, everything. And that is like my driving passion. And how I got here is a bit of a journey. I come from Chicago, Illinois, and I was raised on McDonald's and <laughs> Happy Meals and all that good stuff from when we were kids. I didn't really even know there was a world beyond that until I got into about my 20s. 
And I left Chicago and I joined the military, the U.S. Navy, and uh, I was an air crew woman and I flew all around and I got to meet a lot of cool people, see a lot of cool things. And during that time, I learned about nutrition and just about activism in different ways with charities and things like that. And it started to drive me. I really, really loved it. I felt at home there. And after my service was over, about six years later, I decided to embark on a little journey of my own where I went to Southeast Asia and throughout Europe. And I just lived in different countries and met different people. And I didn't expect anything. When I had gone to Southeast Asia, I at that time was vegan. I'm not anymore, but at that time I was. And my main goal there was to fight for the elephant and stop elephant riding and all this stuff, which is very, very important. And I volunteered for all of that. But also during that time, I had met a ton of garment workers and I did not know that this was a thing. I did not know that it was a big deal. In my mind, I always thought, oh, the fashion is lowered price because they finally figured it out. (laughs) They finally just figured out how to make fashion affordable because growing up, we couldn't afford everything and everything was so expensive. So when I, you know, hit 21, 22 and forever 21 was there, I was like, this is great. Oh yeah. my <laughs> And about what year was this that you were in Thailand? I was 26. So okay. nine years ago, eight okay. or nine years ago. And I met these women and children and I heard their stories. A very few of them spoke English, but we were able to, to talk fairly well with each other. Uh, I had a translator named Vuta at the time. He's an amazing man. And I was just heartbroken. And I was like, you know what? This sounds like something that is my attention more so than anything else. So after this trip, I went to Europe and I was just studying abroad in Austria and Paris. And during that time, I met my husband in Italy and we fell in love very, very quickly. And I had all these travel plans for India and I was going to do all these things. And then I got pregnant with twins oh my within gosh. three months. Wow. <laughs> within three months of meeting him. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was it a was message intense. from the universe. <laughs> totally. So everyone says that too, because I was the one who never wanted kids. I was like, no way. Yeah. Oh, wow. And then once, yeah. Once that test turned, I was like, well, there it is. That's okay. Time to slow down. <laughs> I, without even a second thought, I was actually living in Hawaii at this time because of the military. I had a beautiful house in Hawaii with my friends. We were living the life, but I just left it all. And I left everything there, car, surfboards, clothes, everything. <laughs> they shipped a few boxes over to me, but I was like, I'm never going to fit in that stuff again. You guys have a good time. <laughs> And it was true. So they sent me over just a few things to survive with. And I moved to Italy. And Italy was uh, really, really hard for me. I didn't have any friends. All I had was Martin and I was pregnant. And then when I had the babies, I went through a really hard depression for a long time. I didn't want to leave the apartment. And I was just breastfeeding from morning to night. And I needed to find something to get my creativity out, my writing out. I've always loved to write and to help. And I think I just assumed that when I became a mother, that would be it. Mm-hmm. Had I was like, you love to help, you love to nourish, you love to do all these things. But for some reason, I needed more. I, I thought I was a bad person. I was like, what is wrong with me? But I just had more in my, I guess you could say heart to give. Like mm-hmm. I had more than just this. And I'm so thankful for realizing that so soon when the boys were about four months old, I started a blog and it was just like a little sharing blog, nothing big, but little by little. And the more I kept getting out of the house, thank goodness, I started to see how beautiful this village was that we lived in. We live in a really small little village. Everyone knows each other. My husband's like the mayor. He's a police officer and everyone knows him. It's so cute. And I just saw just these beautiful real life images of sustainability and Nobody had dryers. Everybody was hanging their clothes out their window. And if it rained, it rained. Nobody cried about it. Like yeah. It just you do it the next day. You know what I mean? And everyone was making their own bread and their own cakes. And whenever I would go to a friend's house, there was no packaged foods in front of me. She would knead the dough with her own hands, wait an hour for it to rise. And then we would create it together. I was like, wow, this is a fantastic way to live. And I've never had this before. So I started 
writing about that little by little. I kind of left the blog alone. It was too hard for me to do social media and the website with my, you know, two twin boys. So I took to social media and I would just write captions every day about sustainable living and um, how beautiful it was here. I made a wonderful community. And about last year, I decided to go all in. My children finally started their kindergarten. And I was like, I got the time. Let's do this. And I invested a lot of time and money. And we hired writers and ebook creators and website designers, everything. And we created this new website, a new platform. And it's been a dream come true. I learn more than I teach. That's for sure. I learn something every day. And it's so wonderful. And it's also built me a beautiful community in my own neighborhood. People here are always like, oh, we've seen you do this. And then I'm able to, you know, make friends with local farmers and local shopkeepers. And it's been beyond my wildest dreams. I had never imagined I would be here doing this. So it's very, very cool. That's so (laughs) wonderful. And I also love the way that you came into it, especially with the visit with your friend and the making bread and sort of like glimpses of sometimes when we talk about like the old world, like before like modernization of stuff, not necessarily that it's all about rejecting modern technology and going back and everything, but there's something really, really beautiful about that. And there's like, there are these little pockets still in the world that still live that way. And so... I'm curious, the, the way that, that you told that story, that really stood out as an aha moment. But was that really the first time that you'd experienced that? And do you think that it was because of this new life phase that you were in? Or do you think it was kind of a slow buildup of lots of things? That's a really good question. So my grandmother, my mother's mother, was a wonderful cook. Just wonderful. Every Christmas and Thanksgiving, she would create so many things. But sadly, I never saw it because in our, for some reason in our family, we would never be part of the cooking. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was her thing. So she wouldn't really bring us into it. Yeah. So what I found so magical here was that it was part of everything. My friend who is the wonderful crafter and bread maker, I just adore her. She's taught me everything I know with cooking and everything. She has five children. And whenever we come over there, I'm amazed because they're the ones kneading the bread with her and they're making the cookies and they're making the everything. I mean, they make everything and it's so, they even make their own yogurt. And I'm just sitting there like, I feel so silly, (laughs) you know, forever even buying any of this stuff. And one day I was just sitting at home and my husband's mother came over and she just had a bread maker. And she's like, I thought you would just like this. I was like, wow. (laughs) really nice of you. And then I just started making bread with this amazing machine that must have been 50 to 60 years old. I mean, this wow. wow. Yeah. Very, very cool. So that's just the way it is. Yeah. What was the old bread maker? I remember the one from the nineties that you put everything in and all the ingredients and it just turned it on and it did all the kneading and everything. It was just like that, something from earlier. Very, very similar. It's not as pretty as I would say the 90s ones, a little bit older, mm-hmm. but it's the same mechanism. So it's like a big tin thing in the middle and then you put in flour or the oil, whatever you need, because the ingredients are all on the back of the flour packages over here for the bread making. Uh-huh. And then, yeah, and then it needs it for you. It takes about four hours and then you have your bread. That's cool. Yeah, I had one of those in the 90s when I was a young mom and um, didn't feel like I had time to like knead the bread and let it rise and everything. So that was a real treat. Such a treat, right? Yeah. I really like it. <laughs> then you get homemade bread and it's kind of a compromise. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a good gateway to like all of that to someday when you have time to need it and wait and all that. So I love those yeah, yeah, things. For sure. So yeah, so that is such a lovely story about how your your <laughs> eyes were sort of open to like this other way of life. So you began cooking and you began making things. What was next? What came after this sort of epiphany for you? So with the cooking part, because I was so enamored by it, yeah. I was so mind blown that I could make bread and I could do all these things. The first thing I did was I actually created a recipe blog. Mm. I'm still pretty well known for it, but I stopped doing it because it was so overwhelming. It was so overwhelming, but I am really happy that I did it in the beginning because I felt like it honed my skills really well. And Mm. I was able to test a lot of things. And the first website that I had was a plant-based website. So everything I did was plant-based and it was all just how to make the processed foods at home. You don't need processed stuff. You could just make it at home with vegetables or flour. I never used anything processed or anything like that. So it was all plants, no funny stuff. And that was really cool for me because I learned a lot. I'd gone from zero to a hundred. I knew nothing. I didn't even know how to cut an onion 
or <laughs> peel garlic. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah. When I invest in something, I really invest in something. I must've read like 50 recipe books and tried everything. And my husband's like, you're going crazy. I was like, I love it. <laughs> but the thing with recipes, if you don't have a team and if you're a mom with two littles and you don't even have a baby, I had nothing. I didn't have my mom here, nobody. And I was like, I'm going crazy. Yeah. And I actually, I never wanted to look at food ever again. I was like, I need to stop this. I need to stop. And I took about, I would say six months off. And that's when I just started asking myself, you know, what do you really want to do? And little by little, because of that, the garment workers I had met and I was talking to, I was like, that's it. Like it, the voice kept calling me. It was like, that's mm-hmm. what you need to do. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like sometimes the sustainable fashion niche gets like a bad, like people don't take it seriously too much yeah. because I don't yeah. realize how big of a deal it is. Yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes I think people are like, oh, another fashion blogger. And I'm like, no, no. Like I'm trying to stop you from shopping. I'm trying to not push you yeah. into shopping. It's almost like the opposite and getting, you know, past that is pretty hard, but I feel like we're almost there. I feel like people are finally starting to get it because it's such a big deal. Yeah. It's also tricky to, to be able to sidestep the conversation that the answer is like ethical consumerism or buying this expensive thing over here. That can be part of it, you know, like if you can participate in that way, but it's unfortunate that sometimes that's where it goes immediately and then it sometimes shuts down because not everyone can be a part of that and so it is like you said it's so big and deep and there's like so many like layers to it and we could be peeling it apart all day and you're right it's something that's so easy for us especially as westerners to just like not think about because it's very out of sight out of mind I want to know what your conversation with those women was like what did they tell you that you know really struck you really got your attention and really sort of changed your direction I would say the biggest one that got to me was when a mother was talking about her children Mm -hmm. and how one of her little girls was getting raped by one of the like head managers. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that killed me. And she was showing me there is a, it's a very small place and there's like a little shed or something like in the distance. And she like cursed the shed and she said that that was shed where it happened and to me that was everything I couldn't believe it I was like this is insane Mm -hmm. and I know that Southeast Asia is already well known for pedophiles from the western countries coming there because it's so easy Mm -hmm. and then playing the white savior card Mm -hmm. you know being like oh I'm gonna give you money blah 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 and then taking advantage of and this also happens of course with the garment workers as well so this was a garment worker who had to have her child at work. You hear about that a lot. Yes. Oh, that happens all the time. Because there's yeah. no daycare. So they take him in there. Yeah. That's a typical story. Oh my gosh. How, yeah. That's just staggering. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever been to Southeast Asia, but if you yeah. go to like the main parts, like the tourist parts, it's all children and they're all running around and they're asking you to purchase things and it could mm-hmm. be gum. It could be stickers. It could be whatever. And I think as Westerners, when we see this, we're thinking, oh, that's cute. Mm-hmm. Instead of thinking, oh, that's slavery. Mm-hmm. That kid is working. That kid's not playing. That kid's working. Yeah. And it, it's the same thing, you know, with, I would say Mexico too. When I was little and I'd go to Mexico, there'd be a bunch of kids and they would be selling things. And I just brushed it off thinking, oh, that's silly. You know, maybe they're having a garage sale. Of course, yeah, my yeah. brain could not fathom yeah. that they're working. For me, the kids was the biggest thing. And then the more I talked to them where I researched I'm a very strong feminist as well that was also like wow I mean they Mm -hmm. take such advantage of us I mean such advantage it's unbelievable and they take more advantage of you if you're a mother and that's just heartbreaking yeah it's just so sad I wish there were more people that are able to tell those stories from the inside like you did oh yeah and really kind of just reveal to people what the reality is and translate not only in language but like you're able to kind of translate the experience and sort of the emotional because it's hard even if you're watching a documentary with subtitles it's like one thing I'd say like the true cost for years and years since what the 90s when you know the NAFTA laws started coming into place and our production was moved overseas and we started hearing about the sweatshops. Mm -hmm. I was a teenager then. So that's when I sort of first became aware of the sweatshops. And so you hear about it and you kind of hear that term. And I would say it, it really wasn't until I saw the true cost documentary that the images 
were paired up mm-hmm. with that term. Yeah. And that, of course, really determined a direction for Emma and I when we got started with Lady Farmer. That was our entree into it was the sustainable fashion as well. And even though you know about these things, like everybody knows about it. This is mm-hmm. not this is not a secret. Yeah. But still, we're all walking around and most of the clothing that's available, the huge majority of the clothing that people are buying and wearing yeah. is a product of this, is a product of what is essentially yeah. slavery. I love what you're saying because this is what happens. You take a word and you use it so much. Yeah. It becomes numb. Mm-hmm. And you're like, sweatshop, sweatshop, sweatshop. Yeah. Sweatshop. Yeah. Child labor, child labor, yeah, child yeah, yeah. labor. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But you know what this also off topic, but this also happens with sexual assault, sexual harassment. Yeah. Yeah. We need better words. We yeah. need better words because mm-hmm. it's not, it's not coming up here. It's not working. Yeah. And that's why like whenever I talk about the garment workers and things like that, I almost never use the term sweatshops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even garment workers, I usually like to say woman, mother, mm-hmm. because people are not, yeah, like we're just numb to these It's concepts. like dehumanizing. It is. Yeah. This- I have a question here. Why are people afraid to call that what it is? Why are we afraid to associate the word slavery with that? Because that is what it is. I think we're being less afraid to. Like, I think people say slavery, but I would even argue that even slavery at this point, people are like, oh, yeah, slaves make your clothes. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I feel like in in the last couple of years, the real push to bring, you know, social equality to light and to discuss it and to discuss the systemic problems that create social equality I still feel like a hesitancy on people's part to really call it what it is. And well, people, it's like slavery. It's very much, or it's modern day slavery. Can we not just call it that? Is there a reason not to? Tell me if there is. I want to know. I really believe that it's a privilege thing. Mm-hmm. And I think what it comes down to is when you're at a place of privilege and you lack empathy, mm-hmm. when someone says the word slavery to you, you think about garment workers specifically, they have a choice. Mm-hmm. And when you have this place of privilege, you've never been in this position, you don't realize you don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. When this is the only job out there and it's live or die, it's feature kids or don't, that's Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the garment workers just recently, the clean clothes campaign released a little report on this. There's women now who are not getting paid enough. So now on the side of garment worker, now they have to go do prostitution. I mean, there's no choice. They have to do what they have to do and it's heartbreaking and if anyone out there would ever say this mother doing prostitution is a choice mm-hmm. she has no choice mm-hmm. and so I think that's the problem with the word slavery is that when used with the wrong person mm-hmm. without that lack of empathy it just goes over so it's it seen more like oh these aren't really slaves because it's just their job right. they're not actually owned by another person and it's a job right. it's at least something right. that's another thing yeah you run into yeah. that too oh if we stop buying all those clothes then those people over there won't have their jobs you hear that too you hear that a lot too it's really interesting the way people can excuse their behavior by saying things like that it's very confusing to me especially in the fast fashion industry when they're creating 52 seasons a year of endless clothing and they're forcing manufacturers to create clothing without even being paid Mm -hmm. and then it's a bid on so two factories out of three don't even get paid those clothes go in the trash can only one factory gets paid are you kidding me they're not even getting paid these people are not even getting paid there's like a 70 percent chance that you don't even get paid for your work (gasps) i think that even worsened during the pandemic, right? Oh, yeah. We have a great episode about that from earlier in yeah. the pandemic, actually, about the Crazy. pay up campaign. And it's just insane. I mean, you know, we do this weekly podcast and we talk about this all the time. And it's yeah. just so crazy how every few months this specific issue comes up again. How is this not better? More people know about it for sure. Yeah. But why is this still happening? <laughs> well, I, think- I still think it's yeah. because there's no actionable steps. Pay up, pay up, pay up, pay right, up. Right, right. What are we supposed to do? There's yeah. no template. There's no... Right. A big goal for our website this year is to just make a whole actionable step page mm-hmm. where you go there, kind of like Fashion Revolution, but I would say a little bit more SKL community friendly. Sometimes okay. when you go to Fashion Revolution, it's almost so overwhelming. Everyone's like, where do I go? What yeah. do I do? <laughs> yeah. And we wanted to make it just for like our community request like we want to email pay up we want to email these companies mm-hmm. we'll give you a template you send that you oh, call yeah. this number because without the action it's just sharing and retweeting 
and yes. it's going nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. We had a great conversation with Elizabeth yeah. Klein several months ago, mm-hmm. and she made that very clear distinction between there's ethical consumerism where you're making choices about what to buy and so forth, which is very important, but um, really doesn't go far enough. You really have to go get to the action piece. And websites like yours, and we try to include action steps in our almanac as well. And I want to be able to link into what you're doing as well. And what we call the almanac, that's our online membership community, to give people an opportunity to actually do something. Right, exactly. And But at the same time, you know, this is like easy to say, do something, do something, do something. Yeah. But also I think it's important to recognize that the power, I think for a long time even... On this podcast, we've been like, the power is with the consumer. (laughs) Maybe there's like a negative truth to that. But I'm now figuring out that's so unfair and almost like gaslighty to like put the responsibility on the consumer. And it's what they want you to do. Right. It's what the brands want. I mean, you're feeding into it, right? Yeah. Like, oh, man, I did it again. Yeah. Well, I I think when we say the power is with the consumer, what we're talking about is you can choose not to participate in this. Yes. You can't, you do have that power. And there are all kinds of excuses for participating anyway. And, you know, some of them are, well, things cost too much or, well, that will take away those people's jobs. I'll do this when I'm in a more stable phase of my life and I can afford to buy sustainable things. And people have all kinds of things they tell themselves about it. So we do have that kind of power. The power of refusal, I think, is often really overlooked. And following up with that, the power of refusal as an individual is actually, you know, pretty incremental, but it does have to be in a very big way to actually make an impact. And one of the questions that we often ask our guests, and we'll ask you, and you've probably already answered it, but do you think that our individual power of refusal on a big enough scale is enough to really make a difference? Or do you think something really is going to have to happen from the top down? So I think it could be yes or no, but I think it depends on what you're talking about with refusal. Yeah. But I would say the smaller picture is refusing to purchase from brands. I think that's a smaller picture mm-hmm. because we have a much bigger problem. Mm-hmm. Right. We have 18 million Americans with shopping addictions and I was one of them. Mm-hmm. And you cannot stop that unless you get to the core. And the core of that is overconsumption. Mm-hmm. If we refuse to overconsume, that's a different thing because that's overconsuming of everything. Yeah. That's sustainable and unsustainable. That's forever 21 all the way to Madewell. The problem is we have too much stuff and we need to take responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. If we just think about how different it was with the amount of items we have in our home from 60 years ago to now, it's insane. I yeah. think we're at 15,000 things per household now. <laughs> and it was somewhere around like 1,000 at one point. Oh, wow. Um, not too long ago. What an interesting metric. I've never heard that one. Right? I thought it was really cool too. I actually saw it in a movie once and I did research. I was like, that's actually true. That was, it was a German movie. That's so true. It's crazy because we're no happier. Right. Yeah. We're less happy. Interesting, right? <laughs> so the power of refusal is not just about, oh, don't buy that brand. They have a bad factory in Vietnam or whatever. Yeah. It's refusing to buy into this system of all these things, all this consumerism that on a, a wider scale, the whole picture, it's really creating all kinds of problems, environmental, yeah. social, So health. it's refusing capitalism? My favorite thing is just stop buying shit you don't need. Yeah. Just yeah. stop. <laughs> just Slow it down. But then the deeper question is like, what defines what we need? And like, That's true. You and know? It's all up to you. It's yeah. all up to you. And it's also really coming to what truly makes you happy. Yeah. You know? If another muffin makes you happy, you get that damn muffin. But if you're if you're just getting that to prove something, if you're just getting that muffin to say, I can have this muffin, mm-hmm. I'm getting this muffin because Jerry can't afford this muffin, so I'm going to go get it. <laughs> Things like that. Or like, oh, I saw Sarah have a muffin. I think I'm going to get it too. Yeah. I don't even like this muffin, but I think I'm going to get the muffin. Yeah. There's so many crazy reasons that we buy things. Comparison, yeah. self-esteem, mm-hmm. greed, trying to show off, pretend we have money when we don't have money or mm-hmm. show off the money that we do have. And that's not need. And I really do think that we are all smart enough and capable enough. I mean, our brains are so filled with information and knowledge that we have so much opportunity for growth. Mm -hmm. We can know this answer. And I think a lot of us just don't want to because we're afraid of missing out. We're afraid of not fitting in. We're afraid of not picking off those boxes. And um, I just find... 
that when you really get to the core, which is very hard, it's mm-hmm. not easy. Mm-hmm. But when you do, you just start realizing like, wow, I'm a lot happier without all of those things that I thought I needed to prove myself. Yeah. Now you have two small children. Yes. And I would say in the phase of life when I was raising my three, that phenomenon of being surrounded by stuff was at its height. So how do you handle that? You live and work this and you're teaching this. So tell us how you handle that with little kids and and how you instruct them and form their ideas about this. Yeah. So we've always lived the same way as I started this when they were born. So we're very intent on this. When we first started, we had no money. So that was easy. When you have (laughs) no money, you can't buy anything. And over here, they don't give out credit cards like they do in the U.S. So over here, if you have no money, you have no money. End of story, you cannot take out a credit card. Mm. So when we had the kids, I had no problem. Grandmother sent me secondhand clothes for them, and that was that. I breastfed as long as I could. When we started them on formula after I couldn't fulfill their needs anymore, that really hit us financially pretty hard because it's very expensive here for the formula. So that kept me at a total minimum with my kids. I cloth diapered them and everything to save money, not for sustainability. It was just to save money. As a twin mom, I probably would have used disposable if I could have afforded it. And I'll be totally honest with that. Looking back now, I'm grateful that I cloth diapered though. I really loved the experience after I did it. When they got a little bit older and we had more money, that's really when we had to buckle down because we realized quickly when the money came in, we were spending more money. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like rewarding ourselves for all the hard work we did yeah. in the first two years, which is mm-hmm. silly if you think about it, but it's also not. I think that's the way a lot of people who don't have money kind of look at it once they do. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a really good book on that, a whole cycle of that thinking. I forgot the name, but maybe I'll give it to you later for the notes. Yeah. We had that struggle for a while. And then we started finding ourselves living paycheck to paycheck, even though we had way more money. Mm. And we're like, we need to figure this out. So we started, it was like a minimalist plan. And I started it and I did it with capsule wardrobes. And we had very little clothes at this time. Martin still has very little clothes. I have more than he does. But with the kids, I did a whole capsule wardrobe for my children. And I was like, okay, if my laundry cycle and hang drying them, you're both going to need, you know, 11 pairs of pants, different sweats, different jeans, corduroy, whatever, all in there. And then, you know, like 20 shirts, half long sleeve, half short. And I tested it each year. And so then if I noticed that, you know, the wear and tear was too much on these with this number, I would just increase it to about four or five. And this worked great. My kids are now five years old and they have one itty bitty tiny little chest with these little pullouts, like plastic buckets. Mm -hmm. And it's just one box of pants, one box of shirts, and then underwear on top. And they have a tiny little like TP closet thing that's a wooden closet. And it just has like two jackets, two rain jackets, snow pants, very minimal. And it works fantastic and I never have a mess of laundry like Mm, I used to it's so easy and they dress themselves like they know where everything is all at their height level and then for Martin and myself the way I kept us on our capsule was really funny they don't have closets here in Italy okay so like your apartment doesn't come with a closet and everyone lives in an apartment unless you're really rich you live in a house So we have an apartment. And so you have to go buy a closet. And I couldn't find one anywhere that was small enough because they're so big. I was like, who needs a closet this big? Coming from a Chicago one, which is, my closet was huge. But um, I ended up going to Ikea and finding a little closet that was like three and a half feet wide and two feet deep. And that has been our closet for the past five years. And we share it. So I have the left side and he has the right side. And that's it. And that's all we have. And then we have a little tiny chest drawer for our underwear and bras and his workout stuff. And that's it. And if it's full, it's full. And if we can't like fit something in, then we have to take something out and sell it. Not donate it, but we have to sell it. Uh And that's how we live that way. For our house, it's just, I love bare walls. I love bare space. My kids love to like, you know, run around the house. And so I would never put anything in here that would clutter at all. So I think the only thing that's even remotely luxurious is this work desk that I'm talking to you on. Mm-hmm. Everything else is very much like kid-friendly and just wooden blocks. And So it sounds like you've been able to design, well, a lot of out of necessity, but you've been able to design this very like kind of like minimalist capsule with beyond necessity, 
also just really sticking to the constraints of space. And like, I know you, you said your apartment's small. Maybe you could have found a bigger closet or another chest oh, and yeah. squeezed it in there. You know, like there's ways oh, you yeah. could like make more yeah. like storage for yourself, I'm sure, but you're specifically choosing not to. And then also that's so interesting mm-hmm. that, first of all, I love that you sell it instead of donate it. Yeah. It's just yeah. so easy to be like, oh, I'll donate it. And then like, but selling it is like, takes so many steps. It's such a pain in the butt. <laughs> yeah. And so in a way, I'm like, having a light bulb moment because I always say I'm going to sell things and then yeah and then I'm like oh it's so many steps and I feel better if I donate it anyways but it's an excuse to be a little less conscious about stuff bringing in even from the thrift store yeah it's easy to fill up the bag and put it on the porch yeah for the people to fill up absolutely right and a lot of that stuff unfortunately yeah it doesn't even probably ends up in the land yeah or it goes to another place and another pile that goes to another pile and I know in the states become a problem that the countries yeah then we ship them to other countries they don't want them anymore <laughs> they won't take it's them it's crazy yeah i haven't been able to find out exactly what happens to the european ones we have donation boxes all over our town i'm hoping for the best that because i see people drop stuff off all the time but i have a yeah. bad just feeling you know like yeah you know. another big light bulb in what you just said too is the laundry i currently don't have a family to do laundry for but i have friends that do and i see yeah. you know on my instagram feed particularly in instagram stories moms loving to post about you know it's a thing everyone's doing laundry endlessly but imagine (laughs) what if actually you didn't have to because you didn't have that many clothes I love that concept I have a really funny a reel I posted people were so pissed off but in like a funny way yeah the reel was you don't need new clothes you just have to do your damn laundry and everyone's like oh my god that's so true I was like I know because even with me and my minimalist stuff my whites only get washed once a month because Mm -hmm. it takes so long for that little basket to fill up with whites and so I remember I was freezing I was like I really want my sweater I was like oh maybe I should just like get another sweater for the secondhand shop and I went to the laundry room and I was like it's right there in the basket I was like wow. you just need to Damn yeah. That's <laughs> so accurate. It just sounds like you've really been able to cultivate a system and stick to it. And I think, do you walk people through these things on your website and in your work? I mean, how do you communicate how to get from A to B to people? So I'd love to use my experience to walk people through it. So the website is still pretty new. So we're still creating the eBooks right now, but we're going to have eBooks for all this stuff, walking ah. through shopping addictions, and we're going to have therapists come on. We're going to do all the things, but it's still very new. But on our social page, we've been doing this for a while. And I had a severe shopping addiction when I was in the military because mm. I was always deployed mm-hmm. and I had nothing to do. Like we would fly 12 hours and then we would be left alone for 12 hours. But you know, you have no loved ones. Your friends are off either flying or at the gym or something. And you're mm-hmm. like, I need connection. And the time distance and everything, I would just start shopping. Mm-hmm. And when I would get home from deployment, my apartment would just be full of boxes. And instead of being happy, I was always like, oh, crap, now I have all this stuff. And I don't even know if it fits. The returns are already way past the time, like, cause you were just shopping randomly. Anyway, I had a really bad shopping addiction. So I use that experience on my social media and I talk people through it because I don't want anyone to feel that you can't partake, even if you have the shopping addiction. Even to this day, even though I am a minimalist, even though I work my butt off on this website and all these things, I always tell people that I think the reason I work so hard is because I'm fighting the shopping addiction. Mm-hmm. Because instead of going on, even though I would probably choose Best Year Collective or something to do my shopping, mm-hmm. I would still be over-consuming. I would still be just numbing my pain through scrolling and not necessarily a pain, but like a, a boringness or like I'm bored or I'm lonely. Yeah. yeah. Fill something. Yeah. Exactly. So instead of filling that with the shopping, now I fill that with proactive work, Mm -hmm. activism, or even better. Now I fill that time with a bath Mm -hmm. or a walk. You know, I think before I felt like I always just had to do something. And for some reason, shopping was a doing. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. And it's transactional and it's productive. It feels productive. Yeah, it does feel productive. You feel like you're, I don't know, like you're on top of the world, but you're not. You're, You're just hurting yourself. And so I love using that experience because I just think a lot of people have a lot of shame around it. And I don't yeah. think you need to. I think it's it's something that's been marketed to us since we were born. Mm-hmm. Yes. If you've made it this far without a shopping addiction, I don't know how the hell you did it. Yeah. I'm so happy for you, but I don't get it because yeah. I wasn't there. Like I had a whole different life than you then because growing up shopping was like the prime time, like shopping for new clothes for school, shopping mm-hmm. for Christmas outfits. That was like the best time ever. Yeah. And 
it's really hard to break that cycle. Even like, it's still hard for me to drive past McDonald's and not stop because those Happy Meals made me so damn happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to this day, right now, last weekend, I'm a little sad. Oh, I'll go thrift shopping. It's like so, it makes me so happy. When I grew up in the 60s and 70s, shopping was a main form of entertainment, especially, you know, when you got to be like a teenager that was what you did and even before the mall I predate malls (laughs) our parents would drop us off downtown little main street where all the stores were Mm -hmm. and we'd have our little pocket of money and you'd just walk up and down the streets looking for stuff to buy really yeah right you're just looking for stuff to buy Mm -hmm. yeah and there was just we were having a fun Saturday afternoon that was what you did yeah isn't it crazy to think about it though like Yeah, who marketed this? Who started this? Because this is crazy. Also, (laughs) even our beloved Instagram. (laughs) I recently also got on the TikTok train. I love TikTok. I know. (laughs) I'm so bad at TikTok, though. I know. Me too. I wish I was better. I don't understand. I don't know if you've had this thought, but if I had TikTok when I was in high school. I would own that, but I would like, I was the one like making funny dance, you know, like that was me. And I just feel like I'm a little like so right. old now and I have too much self-consciousness that I built up over the years. Totally. <laughs> totally but anyways, I, I heard someone on TikTok making fun of Instagram and they were like, it's just QVC and like, you don't even realize it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it is. It it's is. this activity that, you know, we think of QVC or like, we think it's ridiculous infomercials. Like who even watches those? They're crazy. No, we literally actively voluntarily open our phones and go on this shopping app that's like feeding us yeah it is like a shopping app oh my gosh it's really hard for our page we try to do the absolute minimum of sponsored posts as Mm -hmm. we feel just so crappy doing them yeah and I don't care who the brand is I don't care if you're saving the world for some reason as soon as I click that little button that says sponsored like I know I just have a bad feeling I really mm-hmm. wish Instagram didn't go that way no yeah not to mention that unless you're pouring literally hundreds of thousands of dollars in, you're probably not even getting your money you know it's like not even a good purchase like totally. I feel the same way you do but I also feel bad because I'm like oh this is like money I'm spending that I'm maybe getting a slight return probably exactly. not exactly I know it's so it's, gross it's hard it is yeah. it is <laughs> oh, and the worst is like when you're having a bad day already and like you already think the world is ending yeah. And then you go on Instagram and all of your favorite influencers are selling something. You're like, damn it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't trust anybody. At the same time, I do want my content creators to get paid for their stuff. But I really feel like Instagram could have done it differently. They could have been mm-hmm. like a YouTube. You yeah. know, they yeah. could have paid you for your work and yeah. not had somebody else pay you to pay you for your work. That's yeah. so silly to me. Wasn't Why it? they did that. It was sold off at some point. So it really did change direction, I think, in a certain yeah. point in time. I don't know when that was. But yeah. So yeah. do any of y'all ever have the experience of going on Instagram and literally it's a feeling like somewhere in my gut that says there's nothing really here for you. Why are you here? <laughs> It's almost like a voice in my head. So I have our main page, which we have too many people that we're following, too many people. So we started a a second page just for the website to just post blog posts, right? And it's the only one I go on now because we're only following like 50 people. And I love when I get to the part Ah. where Instagram sends me a check mark and it says, you're all caught up. We have nothing else for you. I'm like, oh my God, it's the lottery. (laughs) This is amazing. Like I only scrolled for two seconds seconds and I'm done. That's so nice. It was heaven. It was heaven. I've never seen that message. What does that tell you? (laughs) Yeah. So you just follow fewer people. I guess that's it. And they're just literally showing you. Or just, just start a new account just for you and your own personal health. Yeah. Because I feel like business pages, like even if it's, you're totally sustainable, whatever, you're going to get just too much and yeah. people always change direction. So mm-hmm. like one day they're promoting this and the next day it's like, wait, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. I always recommend getting your own small page where you mm-hmm. follow like minimum amount and mm-hmm. enjoy the scrolling there. Cause you're not going to see all that craziness. Yeah. That's yeah. a really good suggestion. I have a good friend who's a floral designer and she's like super picky about who she follows, but she has a pretty big audience. I think that's interesting. And she won't follow any other floral people. She won't follow <laughs> anyone like in her field because that just like messes me up. And then I'm not sure yeah. if it's coming from me. I've always thought that was really interesting. I was the same way for years. I mean, for years, I followed nobody but my own community members. Cool. And then I hired an assistant and she's like, you don't follow anyone in the sustainability community except for like your friends. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to, it's going to mess me up. 
Well, she disagreed. Yeah. So she followed them all. And now I'm so overwhelmed yeah. and I always feel bad and I feel like I'm not doing enough. And I'm like, I can't scroll on this page anymore. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm happily on the other page now. It's too much. Yeah. Oh I totally gosh. agree. And it messes with your creative. Yeah. Because when you have all the input, when you're inputting all the time, especially the same types of things you're trying to output them, you're not able to output. I don't know. It's it's overwhelming. It's so true. You know, sustainability is about our mental space as well. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. That's been like a really good undercurrent this whole conversation, I feel like. Kind of yeah. goes back to what is the root of the problem? And it's really, we have to just totally change our thinking and not Absolutely. even our consumer behaviors, but our, our thinking and our addictions and our consumption of just stimulus and yeah. content. Yeah. It's funny, like everybody's out there trying to produce content and it's like, well, there's a lot of content out yeah. there <laughs> and it's like produce. Oh my God. I swear <laughs> the best sustainable thing I did for my brain yeah. with Instagram was recycling content. Why am I recycling things in my real life and not recycling things right. in my oh, social life? Yeah. That's brilliant. It's such a good idea. I'm <laughs> yeah. still a little bit sick now, but I was sick for the whole last month. Like, I don't know what I have. I don't have Corona. I got tested, but so sick couldn't get on the film I was coughing like I couldn't I was like wheezing and I just recycled stuff from like Mm -hmm. the past two years and it was amazing Mm -hmm. amazing I was like I don't even have to get out of bed this is great I know (laughs) it was so cool we've recently started doing similar because we sort of at one point we realized we're like wait we're putting on a podcast we have like a online community we do Instagram like we have all these things and we're literally doing new things every week. And then the problem is at some point it is too much for the consumer. And so it's like, it's actually a service to them to just like redirect them to things that already exist. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's like, did you see this? And like, yeah, it's not exactly. a bad thing. No one. Yeah. I'm curious, Danielle, what you think of slow living and what does it mean to you? And do you practice it? Slow living. You know, I have like a couple problems with the word slow living, just because I don't find it accessible to everybody, especially the ones that I think we're fighting the most for so that would be the garment workers or anyone who's struggling they don't have that choice mm-hmm. so a slow living for me is a term that I feel like is used a lot to promote a beautiful minimalistic tea drinking self-loving life and that sounds so great but I think everyone needs to have that option mm-hmm. so that's what kills me sometimes do I live a slow life oh absolutely and I'm so privileged to do so and mm-hmm. I make that choice every day it's just really hard for me to really promote that and mm-hmm. talk about it too much because I feel like it brings a sort of shame to those who are working their asses off mm-hmm. and who can't slow down because some people really can't. And, you know, I know many of them personally. And when you bring up the word slow living, they will look at you like you just stabbed them in the back. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. But for us personally, we're very, very privileged to to be able to live that life. And I would say it's mostly because of where we live, our small village, we have free healthcare. Mm. We don't need a lot of money over here to live that lifestyle. And over here, people don't work from the hours of 12 to 3. Everyone takes a siesta. So it's not even open. You can't even work if you wanted to. So slow living is a way of life here. It's pushed on you. I mean, you don't have to sleep from 12 to 3. You can go for a run or something. (laughs) But you definitely have the option. So I love that about where we live. And we made a conscious decision to live here. But again, not everyone can do that. And I'm just so grateful that we have this opportunity. Yeah. I know back in Chicago, I didn't really know what slow living was in Chicago. It's very fast paced. Did I have the opportunity? Sure. But I never took the chance in Chicago. I was always go, go, go. Mm-hmm. I felt like there was always a, a fire lit on my butt. Like I always had to just keep going mm-hmm. to survive. So I'm very happy to be out of that. But um, yeah, that's what I think about slow living. It's, yeah. it's a hard one for me. I yeah. love it, but I also, it's hard, yeah. I yeah. know. It might be one of those words that needs another word. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, the way we talk about slow living and try to communicate the concept is to be conscious of your choices. And hopefully, if enough people really assimilate that into their daily life, like conscious of the consumer choices, conscious of how they spend their resources and their time and all of that, yeah. then it would have an, the overall effect of, and again, individual efforts are incremental in, in terms of the huge picture we're talking about here but maybe you know move the collective consciousness in a direction that would help those that actually do not have the choice like we're talking about the garment workers like yeah conscious choice is even a privilege so in a way it's absolutely I think also it's so important to the privilege of choice is also responsibility of choice and if 
Yeah. You have privilege and you are not privy to the responsibility that comes with that. That's also maybe part of our work yeah. as educators yeah. in this space For is, sure. yeah. you know, obviously we're speaking to people who have the choice totally to make these choices. <laughs> and if you don't have the choice, then you have literally more important things to worry about, like feeding yourself yeah. and your family. But yeah. yeah, totally. In other words, if you are in a situation to make these choices and you're not, then why not? We want to know. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And I think the slow living, I think the greatest thing to come out of it is empathy. Mm-hmm, yeah. I think when you really start to slow down, and I think that's what we're lacking a lot of this world, but I think when you really slow down, and start to give yourself love, then you can finally seek out giving love to others because yeah. I feel like we have a true lack of self-love in our Western world, that's for sure. I can't speak for the rest. I know what I know of our world and yeah. there's a big lack there and it's sad and I feel like we're worried about so many other things than what we should be worrying about. And I think that when we get our self-love down, then we can really have empathy and start fighting for those who have zero choice. Yeah. yeah. And I think that includes, you know, care for the planet as well. Like, you you know, you care for yeah. yourself. I was talking to this guy in Las Vegas. He was a big dude on the corner and 11 years ago or something. And we were just talking about littering and uh, he was homeless and he was just sitting on the street. Homeless, but like young, like, I don't know if he was just sitting around playing music or something, but we were talking about littering and it just came up and he was saying how he doesn't care that he litters. Like he doesn't, doesn't matter. And it, it pissed me off a little bit. And I was a very rebellious younger one. And I was kind of getting on him for it. He was straight up, looked me right in the eyes. He said, why would I give a crap about littering if I can't even give a crap about myself? Wow. And I was like, wow, that is the most vulnerable thing I have ever heard. And wise. In my life. Yeah. <laughs> so wise. Yeah. So wise. I was stunned. I was like, that is so truthful. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's impressive. All our outward behaviors and projections are really reflections of what's inside us. Us within, so without. So, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Boy, we're getting pretty philosophical. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So what does the good dirt mean to you? And you can answer that any way you want, literally or metaphorically or whatever comes to mind. I saw this on the the paper and it made me laugh because I love dirt. We are a dirt loving family. (laughs) I don't know who would ever call dirt bad, but I've always thought dirt to be magically good. But it's dirty. Um, (laughs) Oh my God, it's the best for our children when they were just, I think maybe a month old. We're, We're pretty crazy over here. We had a little garden outside and I was getting it all prepared. It was April when they were about a month old and we were already their feet in that dirt like get on in there Mm -hmm. you gotta get your that dirt in there and my boys are to this day they come home full of dirt they've been to forest school always rolling around dirt or mud or something and we just find it to be absolutely magical whenever I'm having a bad day I will literally just stick my hands in dirt Mm -hmm. and I feel better. I will do a meditation with my hands in dirt or just in my hands. For some reason, I'm maybe because I'm an Aquarius, I'm not sure, but I'm always floating (laughs) here and I always need to ground myself. So to me, dirt is everything. It's what keeps me stable. And yeah. Where does that come from? You grew up in the city and... You know, I don't know. It's such a good question because I have no idea. I've always been like that. I was always like the weirdo barefoot girl. I remember when I was like 12, my brother's like, you have like hobbit feet from walking on the, <laughs> like the rocks so much. I was like, that's great. Like I could like climb a mountain. And yeah. so I call my kids feet hobbit feet now because they, their feet are beautiful. They only wear barefoot shoes or barefoot. One of our sponsors is the Wildling Shoes uh, oh, Company. Yeah? Oh, So they, they have these beautiful, wide, big feet and they can, they can hike anything with their feet and they're they're just wow. Great yeah. walking feet. Oh, that's wonderful. Most people don't realize that your feet are supposed to be wider at the top than they are at the bottom. Yeah. And just think mm-hmm. how many years women have been forced to do the opposite. I know. <laughs> to the fashions. I think when I before I had the kids, I was a size eight. And now I'm a size nine and a half. And I've only worn barefoot shoes. And I believe it's because my military boots and my gym shoes were all a size too small mm. yeah I just thought that's like how shoes were supposed to be worn I was like my feet kind of hurt I was like ah but I guess that's what it is no that was completely wrong and every year that I wore the barefoot shoes my feet would get wider and wider wow wow that's crazy I'm gonna look up the wilding shoes yeah oh they're wonderful they're so wonderful that's all we wear I think I have six pairs and I just cycle through them all throughout the year and you're a minimalist <laughs> 
I know, but six pairs of only waddling shoes, right? Yeah. No, I get it about the shoes. Yeah, no, when you find something that works, I mean. Yes. With it. Oh, my God. They're so great. They're so great. I love them. I actually got all my kids' school teachers on them, too. So all their teachers wear waddling shoes, too. Well, you said they go to forest school, so that kind of tracks. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. cool. Tell us a little bit about forest school. So the forest school is up in the mountain. So we live, I guess you could say like the bottom of the mountain, and then we're surrounded 360. So if you just go about 10 minutes away, um, the mountains are like on top of us. They're very close. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. nothing like I've ever seen in the U.S., just on top of us. So just 10 minutes away, you just go straight up, literally straight up the mountain, and that's where the forest school is. And the view from the top, is of just everything the whole town like three towns over it's gorgeous the sun hits it all morning long so even in winter a lot of the kids are barefoot because it's so hot up there from the sun even when it's snowing it's really really cool it has a yurt and then just a like a wooden cottage but the kids pretty much play in the river and there's free roaming cows and there's a it's really a beautiful beautiful place Oh, oh my god! Wonderful, is it like? It's really cool. They even have a horn that they blow when they have lunch. It's like the like the Lord of the Rings horn. It's <laughs> so sweet. Is it like Waldorf type thing or? You could say so. There's no toys. No toys that are are there are made by the kids with wood. And oh. I think what surprised me the most is it's all nature. And the first day that my kids had school there, they were already sawing with a real saw, hammering wow. with a real hammer, doing everything. Oh my gosh. They had like the sharpest knives. I was freaking out. <laughs> but the teachers are like, no, you just have to teach them and observe. And I was like, wow. Um, yeah. But really, the little wooden place is very small, and it's only for bad weather. They are outside the whole time. And oh, in the winter, it would snow so bad that we couldn't drive up. And it was a good five-minute drive. Now, that's a long time if you think for walking. Five-minute drive up. We would drop our little three-year-old boys at the bottom, and their teachers would take their hands. There was like 12 kids, and they would just hike all the way to the top of the school. And then by the time I pick them up, because it's uh, four schools only four hours long because it's very intense, very intense physically. So only four hours maximum for four school here. So four hours later, the snow would be melted and I would pick them up and they would just be finishing their walk. And I was like, damn, this is insane. So they spent the like, whole day walking to school. Wow. Yeah. And you always pack them with snacks and yeah, things like that. Oh, so they would stop wonderful. and they would eat. They would forage. They would have berries because the forest school teachers our foraging masters and the things I learned it was so cool there yeah really really cool I want to go there I know (laughs) I said they let me go for the first week and they're like okay we think that you need to go now because the kids are and I was like no 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 (laughs) oh how magical is that that just that just sounds so magical I would I oh Emma I wish you were that age again I would say I was four yeah (laughs) well not really so cool so Danielle is there anything else first of all this has been so wonderful this is just like chatting with an old friend thank you so much for joining us I'm so happy I did it is there anything that you'd like to leave with our audience anything that you want people to understand about the work that you're doing or anything else you just want to talk about that we didn't cover really I just want to say that if you're just looking for like a friend to help you through this you know time uh and it's anything to do with sustainable living or sustainable fashion, our community is there. If it's not me, it's a member of our community. I mean, we've been, we've created some really close bonds and we communicate all the time and they're just so fantastic. And I always tell people, yeah, I may be the face of it, but the community runs it and Mm -hmm. they're so wonderful. Yeah. So we would just love to have anyone who wants to come. You do not need to be perfect. Honestly, the opposite of perfect is probably what we're looking for Mm -hmm. (laughs) because Nobody needs to be perfect. You just have to want to try, want to learn, want to get inspired. And that's really it. So tell us about where they can find you and all that good stuff. So you can find us online at sustainablykindliving.com. And then we have two social pages on Instagram, sustainablykindliving, and then sustykindliving with a Y. And then you can find us on Facebook at sustainablykindliving, or you could follow my personal Facebook. Facebook page. It's not my personal, personal one, but my name page, um, Danielle Alvarado on Facebook as well. We are on TikTok, but I wouldn't waste your time with us on 
<laughs> I know we're the same. <laughs> I put up like two videos. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, I think I was on a roll for like two weeks and I just totally forgot about it. <laughs> Not my place. And Pinterest too. You can find us on Pinterest. We have a really great Pinterest manager who runs that. So if you want to just head to the blog post, that's a good place to go too. And that's just sustainably kind living as well. Do you ever teach courses or are they on your website or anything like that? So we were going to do courses, but we want to make everything completely accessible. So yeah. we are creating 12 eBooks in 12 months. So every single month, we're going to have a new eBook and it's going to be free with an option to donate if you want to, but absolutely zero pressure. I would much rather you hit zero than struggle in any way whatsoever. The donations pretty much just go to hiring more writers and more creators for the website. But each book is going to be a sort of a guide to something. This month, we're doing a color season analysis to where you can find which colors actually match your skin tone. So you stop purchasing things that you don't need. My favorite thing to say. Okay. And so you just you stick with your color palette. Next month, it's going to be capsule wardrobe. The next month after that is greenwashing, how to avoid greenwashing. And we're just going to keep going down the line with different guides to help people. That sounds so exciting. I can't wait to follow along. Generous of you Thank with you. all of that information. Yeah, that's incredible. Really, really. Yeah, I think, I really think it needs to be free. I'm tired of this nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> it just needs to be free. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you. It's so wonderful. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed it so much. It was so nice to meet you. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye. <laughs>